you're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe. Building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 415. I'm your host, Andreas Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckman. See ya! Hello! Hey son, hey son! I mean, how are you, Andros? It's good to see you back! <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not back yet. I'm still at the end of the, the world, so the, uh, the other for the far end, but... Yeah, not as far as New Zealand, but uh, I'm, I'm still in Malaysia. <laughs> yeah, you know it's a globe, um, right? So you're always in the middle if you see it that way. Yeah, yeah. The world is yeah, always around there, you. There are points. <laughs> not true. However, <laughs> however, um, there are points that are further from each other. So oh, um, that is true. Then, that is true. And there could be a set point that is the furthest that you can go. And uh, I'm not there. I'm not there okay. yet. But okay. um, yeah. Okay. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, thanks for doing the episode last week. But I hear that that there have been a bit of a feedback. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, we should say that Annika couldn't be there this week. So we take oh, yeah. uh, take turns a little bit here on the show. I, I seem to be around most of the time, but I'm staying put. Yeah, so I'm not traveling so much. Yeah, I, I promise we are not avoiding each other. With <laughs> that's good, that's good. <laughs> it's more about the constant flow of episodes so that, that uh, there is always at least two of us there. Yeah, yes. That's, that's what we're trying to provide. One would be too, too few. But we also had Luna last week, which was a delight, as always. but as you were going to say i think andras we got some listener feedback because in your absence Mm -hmm. maybe i said something stupid i don't know we we got some well it's a complicated issue we we got some feedback or maybe i should call it pushback on what i said about ai last week Uh, and annika didn't contradict me but uh, that was me who said most of that and i was rather categorical when i said it doesn't matter if art or text is being generated by AI or not, I said AI is just a tool and it's only the end result that matters. And it seems like a couple of you out there do not fully agree with that. And maybe I was a bit, I made it a little bit too easy for myself. I think maybe I was a little bit too categorical because as we like to say as skeptics, it's always a little bit more complicated than that. And um, also in <laughs> in my defense, I spoke I spoke off the cuff. It was not something I had prepared in in advance. So the emails we received brought up that AI cannot said to be truly original since it bases what it does on human examples and just tries to mimic human art or text or whatever we talk about pictures. Fair yeah, enough. and it does seem a little bit unfair that it uses creative material that is has been made by people, but they don't get any credit for that. No royalty, no recognition, because AI just takes that as a basis and, and creates uh, something that is derivative of that. And I, I do agree, as I said, that I made it a little bit too simple. But if I was to play devil's advocate here, may I point out that we all do that? Because there's very, very little creative work, or if any, that starts totally from scratch. You could argue that we all get inspiration from works done by other people who most of the time do not get paid for that. If I, you couldn't write a novel if you had never read another novel. You know what a novel's supposed to be like because it's something that you have 
being exposed to and you take that and you make it your own. And so I would say that mm-hmm. 99.9% of all creators create something and are inspired by earlier work. And very, very few works are truly original. So there are shades. Uh, it's not so black and white as I made it out to be last week, but uh, it's hard. I, I think it's complicated, as I said. And there, there are many angles to it. Some are philosophical. There are legal angles and practical angles. What we want, we don't want to make people out of work, but that's also an argument that has been made about a lot of stuff that hasn't really turned out to be the case in the end. And and also our sense of fairness is at stake here. But all in all, I think we can all agree that AI is here to stay. It is a tool. And at least in my opinion, we should allow it to be used for for good. It, I'm sure it's going to be used for bad or evil as well. But at least we shouldn't try to say it's not allowed to use it. So, yes, mm. uh, it's a little, little more nuanced than what I said last week. Can I just say something about the fact that you pointed out that we all build on something else? Mm-hmm. That there is an example that popped into my mind. I don't know if I, I, I listeners know that, but I used to study jazz. And uh, in jazz, there is a lot of room for improvisation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yes. Which, me- which means basically that whatever you produce as music is born right there on stage. But in order for you to be able to improvise, you need to learn how other people do that. Yeah. So the way they teach you how to improvise is that you try to copy <laughs> tune by tune. I mean, really, yeah. you have to make an exact copy of what other people did. So, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald. Okay, yeah, Al Jaro. Oh, oh, yeah, do that, do that, and do the other performer as well. And the more you do, the more you learn so that it's exactly how AI works, that you have to teach them things to be able to improvise something that is their own. Yeah, fascinating. I think it's so a good, good I, point. I agree with yeah. you. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I'd like to thank our listeners for giving us that feedback. Any kind of feedback is always appreciated because we learn a lot from that Absolutely. as well. Yes. Plus, we would like to do things uh, that uh, that make sense to you. So even if it was not about an error, it was not about something that was really non-factual or something. But sometimes even that that may, may happen, and we want you to point that out so that we can we can make it work. We can make we can correct them. Yeah, we can um, all learn. Yeah, exactly. Get in touch. So info at the ESP.eu. You can always find us. You can get in touch on uh, Facebook as well, the Messenger. You can follow us on uh, Twitter, whatever whatever it is called now, X. <laughs> I don't know. I created, um, so, actually created um, a Blue Sky account the other day. I don't know if that will help. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe, thanks, Aniko, we have a TikTok account as well now. Yeah. So you uh, yeah, just have uh, to put something can, on it. You can follow us on Instagram as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just choose one or or follow us on all of them. If you share it with others as well, that is greatly supporting our work. Yeah, that's a good help. That's a great help. So please do that. Uh, but you can help in other ways as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you really want to help, you should go to patreon.com slash the ESP and see if you can send us a little, what I used to call micropayment. I don't know if that's still the mm-hmm. term used, but, you know, a little... 
maybe a dollar or a pound or a, a euro for every episode. That really helps a lot. Thank you if you do that. We could not be more grateful. Um, so keep doing that and we'll keep producing the show. So why don't we crack on with this one? <laughs> Meaning, basically, since I'm here and I'm the one usually doing that, but uh, I really loved the fact that uh, last week you did something exciting. Archaeology is always great stuff. So I'm talking about, of course, This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Twish. And this week's birthday boy is also an archaeologist. Ah, uh -huh. Was, unfortunately, not around us anymore, um, because uh, he was born on the 19th of February, 1846. And I'm talking about a guy named Charles-Simon Clermont-Ganon. And he was a French Orientalist and archaeologist. So he was born in Paris, and Paris for a long while was the epicenter of archaeology. From the time of Napoleon, archaeology was a big hit in the country. And uh, yeah, he was like a child of that phenomenon. He really did some archaeological work that is massively significant. For example, he did some work in uh, Jerusalem and larger parts of the Middle East. He identified biblical cities. I understand that there were several of them that he managed to identify with archaeological remains from the places. And um, he also was very famous for dismissing things that he thought to be forgery. Mm. And in some cases, it turned out not to be the case. One of them is the so-called Meshastel, or the Moabite stone, that is something from the town of the Moab, which was a kingdom in uh, Georgian back in biblical times. And now most scholars agree that it's genuine and it was created sometime in the 9th century BCE. So it's a quite an ancient writing on a stone. A local Arab guy bought it and it went on to be acquired by the Louvre. Clermont Ganot was a little bit suspicious, but then that suspicion turned out not to be based on reality. So it, it was one of his misses, but he did dismiss a couple of alleged archaeological remains that uh, turned out to be really fake. So this is the reason why we are featuring him on the show. He had a bit of a crusade against archaeological forgery. So oh, good for him. Yeah, we are actually doing a, a series of that <laughs> now, I mean, in the terms of running Trish. So I don't know if you've heard about the so-called Shapira strips. I don't think so, no. No, they were a manuscript, the Shapira scroll, and it's a set of leather strips. And the writing on them was a Paleo-Hebrew kind of writing. And a guy who was uh, very famous for selling artifacts, some of them were actually his own works. So, I mean, <laughs> he's, okay. he was... That's one way. He did sell a couple of authentic archaeological artifacts, but uh, he did forge a couple of them. At the beginning, it was a big hit that he came up with this uh, with scrolls. The guy's name was Moses Wilhelm Shapira. 
And in 1883, this was presented by him as definitely Bible-related artifact, even though scholars immediately rejected it. A lot of people ate it up with a tablespoon, but not our birthday boy, Charles Clermont Ganon, because he saw it for what it was, an actual forgery. It became such a big issue that uh, it resulted in Moses Wilhelm Shapira was committing suicide in the end because Ooh. he just, yeah, the shame that was brought about by that, it was not bearable for him. So a year later, he was already dead. But further studies of the Shapira scroll revealed that this was not even a very good kind of forgery. So uh, it didn't fool people for too long. But... There were others that um, Claire Monganon dismissed based on his archaeological findings and his uh, overwhelming experience with uh, Middle Eastern artifacts. And um, one of them was the tiara of Saitaferne. I'm absolutely not sure if this is the way it uh, is supposed to be pronounced. But it's a gold sheet that is made into a tiara. And uh, it was also acquired by the Louvre in 1896. And its own creator, Israel Ruchomovsky, was the one who revealed that it was fake. <laughs> so the, the first reaction of uh, Clermont Ganos was actually right when he dismissed it. Sometimes these could really mean that a lot of money was spent on these artifacts in vain by these institutions. The tiara of Saitaferne is a good example because the Louvre paid 200,000 francs. Oh. at the time and it was on display for a while as a genuine artifact yeah. so uh, Clermont Ganon was a bit of a debunker and a bit of a critic a lot of people criticized his attitude towards some artifacts because he had a tendency to, to dismiss everything offhand but the reason why he did that so it could be twofold one of them is that he saw things for what they were but he did have a couple of misses the other thing is that this is how science works we need to question other people's scientific work so that we can put it to the test and if it stands the test then we can display them in museums and work with them forward to acquire a lot of scientific data so his birthday was uh, the 19th of february he died on the 15th of february 1923 at the age of 76 so we could have used that date as well <laughs> but i think on recent episodes we've had Too many enough deaths. commemorations of death yeah <laughs> so <laughs> mm -hmm. charles simon clermont ganot the big debunker of archaeology ah very interesting i hadn't heard of him before so thank you yeah Thank you. And uh, that brings us to another segment, which is when we talk about what's new in Europe. Speaking of old things, you know, I think, Andras, we don't talk about dinosaurs enough on this podcast. Who doesn't love dinosaurs? Uh, not, Why? Especially not in the news segment. No, exactly. <laughs> very old news. Very, very old news. So uh, I don't know why that is. Maybe there aren't too much news about dinosaurs. Should be. Maybe we're reading the wrong websites or papers. Never mind. But you talked about forgeries before when it came to archaeological finds. But there are also fake fossils, believe it or not. Fake fossils are among us, Andras. I know. <laughs> uh, that is a <laughs> present company excluded, of course. 
But that message comes to us from Valentina Rossi. So uh, back mm-hmm. to Pontus Fake's Italian. Um, she <laughs> is a paleobiologist at the University College Cork, which is in Ireland. But she started out in Italy, but now she works there. She works with the analysis of pigmented soft tissues in fossils, but also extant vertebrates, which I believe means that they are still around. She... Yeah, it's so confusing that that extent is the the ones that are still around and extinct. Otherwise, so that's very confusing. Such indeed. a small difference in the words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But what she specializes in is uh, studying dinosaur fossils that have remains of soft tissue preserved somehow. And this, of course, is very rare because uh, soft tissue decomposes very quickly, so it rarely has time to fossilize. In Ross's own words, quote. Fossil soft tissues are rare, but when found on a fossil, it can reveal important biological information, for instance, the external coloration, internal anatomy, and physiology, end quote. So it's quite obvious, I think, that you know from the bones you can only see so much, and if you have more information, that's always better. So she studies this, so naturally she was very excited to get to examine a rather famous fossil, which was found in 1931 in the Italian Alps. It is the fossil of a Tridentinosaurus antiquus, which I think just means a three-toothed ancient lizard. I I think it sounds... Even better in Latin, of course. But this fossil (laughs) has been described in books and articles for a long time because it seems to have soft tissue preserved in the rock that it's still attached to. This fossil is estimated to be from the Permian period. Do you know offhand how old that is, Andras? Permian period? This is really mean putting you on the spot. It was before... It was a, a Perm-Triassic boundary, which was around 200 and something million years ago. Ah, right. 299 million to 252 okay. million years ago. So I, I had to look mm. that up, I admit. So, But anyway, it's way beyond uh, when we had T-Rexes and stuff. It's very long, long time ago. But when Rossi and her colleagues carefully analyzed the specimen... They were the first ones to use modern technology or modern techniques to do that. And they noticed that it had been treated with some sort of coating material. At least that's what it looked like. And that's not so unusual in the older days, early 1900s or so. That was uh, sometimes done to preserve the fossil. But looking closer, they found that it was just paint. It was fake. It was a real fossil, but if the re- the real fossil was pretty bad and somebody had used black paint to improve on it and to make it appear that it there was preserved uh, soft tissue. And uh, Valentina Rossi says that unfortunately fake fossils are not so uncommon. It's, there are some famous examples. Most of us have heard about Piltdown Man, which was a famous hoax uh, from uh, 1912. It took until the 50s before it was revealed, mostly because nobody was allowed to really look closely at it. But it still happens today. The fossil trade in the world is a multi-million dollar business. And Rossi lists a number of examples, old and new, that have been revealed. People are using all kinds of stuff, she says, even plastic and paint to enhance 
fossils to make big money. Or very often there is a fossil, but then they add things to it to make it look more impressive. So Rossi (laughs) now makes a call to get this recognized as a big problem. And she said, quote, we need governments around the world to introduce rigorous laws to protect our world's paleontological and geological heritage, end quote. And uh, of course, I agree. Don't fake the science, people. It's hard enough as it is. And uh, that (laughs) about faking the science, faking the data, that seems to be a recurring theme over the last couple of episodes. So... uh, it happens in I wonder all why. disciplines. Yeah, in all <laughs> disciplines. Well, if you have uh, millions of money, millions of dollars to gain from it, uh, I guess people take their chances. Although this, I don't yeah. know if this fossil in question was actually to make money. It can also be, of course, to impress others and, and make a name for yourself. Look what I found. Mm. I'm a little bit in two minds with this because I frequently visit with groups, of course, some museums where paleontological remains are exhibited. And in some cases, when it's dinosaurs, it's old fossils, they are completed. But the ones that I really appreciate are those where it's clearly indicated which part of the, the skeleton yeah. is the real one and which part of it was the completion of the skeleton so that you can see it as a whole and not just the fractions of it. No, I, I agree. I mean, so, it's very seldom that you find a, f- a complete skeleton of an animal fossilized. Exactly. So very often you add, you know, if you have the left leg, you can add the right leg because it probably yeah. looked uh, the same, but just mirrored. But yeah. but then I agree with you. Then you should make it all black or something so that you, you can see this part was added and yeah. this part was genuine. That's not fake, but, but, I mean, but you need to show clearly what you've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's educational when it's like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, displaying something as real when po- at least part of it is not, that is not the right way to go about it. Yeah, so it's always difficult to spot the fake. It's always a massive undertaking when it comes to finding that out. And the problem is that this is the case with all the news as well and all the political kind of information and uh, things related to all kinds of things from war to economical decisions of politicians and all that, especially in a year when lots of countries are holding elections of some sort, either local or general or presidential elections. When it comes to the continent of Europe, which includes places that are not, of course, in the European Union, we have 25 countries that are going to hold elections this year. That's a massive problem because we've been talking about that for a while, that uh, elections could be really badly influenced by disinformation and falsehoods. It's a big issue and we need to tackle that. And especially uh, we have the European Parliament elections Mm. in June. Yes. So we need to take care of our electorate so that they base their decisions on or they vote 
on facts, which is, well, sounds like utopia <laughs> by at this point, unfortunately. But it becomes even more difficult when there are some very influential actors in the background trying to spread misinformation or doing disinformation campaigns. And a French security agency that is called Viginum, or I don't, well, Viginum, or this is, this is how you pronounce it, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, please, I'm pretty sure that there are listeners from France, please let me know what the proper pronunciation is. You can send us uh, short um, audio recordings as well. So it was set up in 2021 to detect digital interference from foreign entities that are supposed to influence public opinion so that they can twist election results in favor of some governments. And unfortunately, the government that comes up the most in these cases is the Russian one. No. Um, so, it, no, <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this time, unfortunately, they find that there is a network that could be identified that is based in Moscow. And uh, it turns out that some of the data that could be revealed or to, could be could be identified points directly to Moscow. It looks like it's a well-organized attack on different countries. At least 193 sites could be identified as such, and they were all disseminating pro-Russian propaganda, especially related to the war in Ukraine that Putin still calls a special military operation and not a war, even though hundreds of thousands of people have been lost already, even on, even on the Russian side. So obviously they are trying to weaken Ukrainian war efforts in the way of criticizing the Kiev government and everything that they do so that they try to build up the picture in people's heads that it's an impossible task for Zelensky to win this. The French researchers call this network the portal combat, <laughs> which is very fitting, and I think it's a good choice, but it's too unfortunate that uh, we have to name something like that because it exists. So I think they had lost an opportunity there. It should be called the Comrade Combat. Comrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just my um, opinion. So it's not only the French. There are EU, NATO and UN agencies that uh, have been doing that kind of uh, security research and uh, uh, close monitoring of content. And um, I'd like to point out that it's not about what the actual content is, but it, whether the content is factual. What the, this agency found is that uh, it's never genuine original content that they share. They re- reuse already existing things that have lots of falsehoods in their statements already and uh, it's just the dissemination of that through all the different channels so it's mostly social media and one of those platforms that they use is telegram and telegram has channels where lots of subscribers could be reached with all the falsehoods that are out there Melissa Fleming, the UN's communication secretary general, said about that, that disinformation is being used to create not just the fog of war, but more suspicion and more hatred, end quote. And as a result, this was undermining everything, including peacekeeping in all kinds of region where war is going on. If some of the international organizations have the aim of bringing about peace, 
But because the emotional effect that these faults are spreading around could have on people, it just further polarizes the political field. And uh, that could result in a twist in election results all over the world. And uh, the most of our concern is that it will happen in Europe as well. This is why the EU's vice president for values and transparency, Vera Jourova, said that this has to be tackled. We need to keep a close eye on this. As she said, I quote, every day we see the Kremlin's action to spread propaganda and interfere in democracies. From Putin's blatant lies in broad daylight to a hidden network of propaganda sources now just unveiled, the Kremlin spares no effort and neither should the EU. End quote. Mm. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, uh, yeah, we yeah. need to be on top of this, or at least try to fight it. And I have to mention that one of those countries that are holding elections is Russia. <laughs> so we yeah. will probably see Putin re-elected. Well, it's most likely. Uh, yes, uh, it's no, a done deal, I think. I mean, it would be extremely <laughs> strange if it didn't happen. Oh, yeah, boy. especially with, um, well... There are strange things happening in Russia at the moment. We just lost a couple of days ago one of the greatest fighters for Russian democracy, yeah. Alexei Navalny as well. And I'm, we're not going to go into the details and the conspiracy theories surrounding his death. But uh, when it comes to Russia, the conspiracy theories might just be real conspiracies in the background. I, I think that's so, high, high, very likely. <laughs> very likely. So. Yeah. So... We need to watch these closely uh, because we are being manipulated from the background. Yeah, We also need some good news. So yes, please. let's have some good <laughs> news here. So on 15th of February, after decades of discussions and very slow progress, same-sex marriage was legalized in Greece. And this is oh, a nice. huge milestone because, as I understand it, that makes Greece the first country with a largely Eastern Orthodox Christian background to do this. So that's well done. A little bit almost surprising. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, the rights of same-sex <laughs> couples have been discussed in Parliament since 2006. And the first step was in 2008 when so-called cohabitation agreements were first recognized. That, that's, that's a strange term. I haven't heard about that. We usually talk about civil unions, but this was something similar, but not exactly the same. And it sort of implies that the, the main characteristic of these agreements was that you cohabitate. You know, married couples often do live together. So I think it's common, but, but it's not the defining factor, is it? I mean, you, you could be married and, and live Separate. I, I, I don't know. Never, never mind that. But that was the first step that happened. And then there has been progress and there's been promises and it's been in discussions for a long, long time. But now finally, full-fledged marriage is allowed also between same-sex couples. And that is very good. So congratulations to Greece, who now joins most of the European countries to, to recognize this. But uh, not all of them are recognizing this, we should say. We have certain countries where you still can only do civil unions, and that is not exactly the same. It has some disadvantages. It's hard to adopt children, for instance. So civil unions is the only thing that is permitted in Cyprus, Hungary, Andras, mm -hmm. Czech Republic, Italy, Latvia, Montenegro, and San Marino. And then there are some that are even worse, 
because they have no or very, very limited right for same-sex couples. And that is in Bulgaria, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Russia, of course, and also Slovakia. So we're waiting for them to, well, catch up as well. All right. But in the spirit of good news, (laughs) (laughs) this week we have a really right award to hand out. And here to do that is my friend Pontus Beckman. (laughs) Nice to be introduced by name Uh, (laughs) in the middle (laughs) if somebody had forgotten who I am. But yes, here I am. I will be your Annika for today and um, talk about something good, which is nice. But I would say that it is a bad thing, starting from the beginning, it is a bad thing when people choose alternative treatments over real medicine or even choose to go untreated altogether. But at least if it's their own choice, it's not much we can do about it. We cannot normally lock people up and force medicine into them. That's not how our society works. But what's even worse is when charlatans and sects or sect leaders convince individuals or their whole community sometimes to go without medicine. And that happens. It's part of a cult leader's signum, if you will, to control every aspect of its followers' lives. In many cases, you control what they do, who they have contact with, what they think, who they can or cannot have sex with, because somehow it always comes down to sex Very often, at least, sex tends to become very important for these cult leaders. And for some mysterious reason, very often it turns out that the only person you can have sex with is the cult leader. And you're supposed to do it as well. Very strange how that happens. And terrible, of course. But that's beside the point. Because terrible as it is with sects and cults, at least the medicinal part of such sects have now been addressed by French lawmakers. On 15th of February, the French National Assembly adopted a major law aimed at strengthening the prevention and fight against what they call, quote, sectarian aberrations, end quote. So well done, France. There were a couple of parts in this bill, which in turn is part of a multi-year national strategy from 2023 to 2027, so more is coming. And it's a result from the Conference on Sectarian Abuses that apparently was held in uh, last year, in the spring. The National Assembly called it a, quote, major step in strengthening the criminal arsenal and the protection of victims, end quote. Sabrina, oh, this is uh, French now, so Sabrina Agresti-Roubache, maybe? Who She is the Minister-Delegate for Citizenship and Urban Development. She made this statement, quote, This text, which is highly awaited by victim support associations, aims to strengthen our legal arsenal to fight against sectarian abuses. I am delighted that all the articles have been adopted, in particular Article 4, which creates an offence of provocation to abandon or abstain from care, end quote. Well done. So it is now a criminal offense to try to persuade your sect members to forego conventional medicine. And um, yeah, it should have been a crime a long time ago, but it's good that they specify this particular situation. I, I think that we would like to see that in other countries as well, because it is... 
not uncommon, I believe. And for starting this, hopefully, trend of new legislation all over Europe, the French National Assembly receives this week's prize for being really right. Mm -hmm. And it's well deserved. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so uplifting to see a really right from time to time instead of just <laughs> us pointing out who'd been really wrong. Yeah, we're always um, coming with the bad news, but sometimes it's good. Yeah, but this is what we skeptics have to be used to, unfortunately, because mm. mostly we choose to pay attention to, to things that are wrong. So in a way, it's our own fault. <laughs> Okay, but that brings us to the end of this week's episode, which uh, is always marked by a quote. So before we go, uh, we have a quote, and uh, I'll be sitting in for Annika to provide our listeners with one. And this quote is from an Italian physicist and chemist, Mr. Alessandro Volta. And he did say an important thing. The language of experience is more authoritative than all kinds of reasoning. Fact can destroy our reasoning, but not vice versa. Mm. I like that. <laughs> the last part I yeah. really like. If we get new facts, that should change our reasoning. Destroy it in his words, but it should change it. But you never do it the other way around. You don't reason your way into a position yeah. where the facts disappear. Then you're doing something really, exactly. really wrong. <laughs> exactly. And he was a researcher that knew what he was talking about because he managed to change the reasoning behind electric phenomena. Because uh, Luigi Galvani, his fellow uh, Italian, had thought previously that whatever he found was based on biology. He thought that electricity has a biological origin. And based on Volta's work, the world learned that, no, it's the other way around, that biology builds largely on a non-biological phenomena, which is electricity. So, um, yeah. yeah, electrical currents and uh, things like that can have a large effect on biological entities. So, yes, um, that's, that's amazing. So um, that brings us to uh, the actual end of uh, this week's episode. So I'd like to thank you, Pontus. Thanks a lot, Andros. And many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, when we hopefully get Onika back as well, goodbye. Hello. Bis that. Tschüss. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe 
connection seems fine so far. Yeah, everybody's sleeping, so <laughs> probably <laughs> why. It's 4.15. Okay. Trident, Tridentinus... No, I said that. Tridentinosaurus Antiquus.